I changed the text today. I've stepped out of Mark for a week. Let me pray and I'll explain why. Father, we thank you for this time together. We're so grateful to sing to you. Oh, my heart is so encouraged to sing those truths. A Lord that beat the grave for us. Lord, what a, an amazing moment as your body began to breathe again. Your spirit, of course, was alive and proclaimed victory. But there your life, the body, became, began to breathe again. And you came out of that grave, Lord. Put a stamp on, on the approval of all of our resurrections. From both spiritual death and then from, from physical death, Lord, one day we will rise as well. So, Lord, we thank you for being able to sing, Lord. Thank you that we have a church that won't hold back when it comes to gathering and singing. We believe this is what you've charged us to do, and so we want to do that, Lord. We pray you'd bless that, Lord. Do pray for our churches and other places that are being very much sequestered, Lord. Pray that you would give them boldness to stand where they need to, Lord. We pray for the people of the church that they would follow their elders, Lord. And God, pray that you protect the church of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for our missionaries scattered around the world. We're so grateful to stand with them, not only financially, but particularly with the gospel. These men and women love your word. They love the gospel. They have committed their lives to sharing it around the world, Lord, and we are committed to them. And so I pray that we would be givers here, Lord. Cause us not to hold back. May we be consistent in our giving. There's so much, the gospel, the seminary, the preaching here, pastoral care, the school, so many things ride upon the giving of God's people. And so, Lord, help us to give with deep pockets and a deep heart, Lord, for your truth to go forward. Lord, we love you. We're glad to be here. Lord, thank you for your word. What a joy to teach it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, sometimes a pastor just gets a burden on his heart um, and and you just kind of change gears a little bit. For those who are, are visiting or new or haven't been uh, following along with us, we've been in a study in Mark for quite some time. I'm in chapter 15. I'm closing in on the end. But I think sometimes as you study, my personal study often weighs into my, my public preaching at times. Um, I think it was a combination of working through the Ten Commandments on Wednesday night, how impactful that has been to our lives still today, how God set up uh, a law that is so good for society and particularly for believers to keep us close to him, to keep us living towards him. And then in my personal study, I've been in First and Second Corinthians. And, and there I kept being challenged what it means to live a godly life. A godly life. And so about halfway through the week, I began to think, I, I'm going to change my sermon this week. So I'm going to preach Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Let me give you a few verses that affected me along the way as I came to this decision. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. We have conducted ourselves in this world with godly sincerity. Paul goes on to talk about godliness in a lot of ways. Um, it is a problem at the, in the Corinth church. You know that letter well, I trust. The first book is a strong rebuke. Strong rebuke. They, they have lost the vision and understanding of the grace and glory of God through just personal preference and worldly desires and failing to believe and obey God's word. And the, It's a strong letter. And by the time he gets to the second, he's written two more in between that that are not inspired and in the Bible. But, but now he comes to this point where he wants them to learn what godliness is about. He says things like this, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godliness leads to repentance. When's the last time you repented of something? 
said, God, I am wrong. I'm, I'm contrary to you on this. Whatever that may be. See, godliness brings repentance. It does. We should always be repenting of things in our life. I don't think there's anybody in this room would stand up and say, I'm perfect. <laughs> and so if we are not perfect, we confess that to be perfect in our standing in Christ, but here in our humanity we still struggle, don't we? Then there should be repentance. Godliness brings on repentance. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 here Paul tells that he, that he has a godless, a godly jealously for the purity of the church. For the purity of the church. God wants Riverbend to be a church that's pure. You say, well, how do you get there? Well, certainly through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it comes through repentance and confession of our sins and, and being right with one another. He desires, he has a godly jealousy for the purity of the church. Paul later, in writing to Timothy in his last inspired letter, in 2 Timothy 3, 12, says, he says that everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. Isn't that interesting? There's a connection between godliness and persecution. So what's the opposite of that? Don't live for God, you won't see persecution. And unfortunately, I think that's where so many Christians or those who claim to be Christians want to live in that zone. I'll be a Christian for a few hours on Sunday, but not in any way, shape, or form that is going to put me in the crosshairs of suffering. That's not our Lord's example. And you go, well, Scott, I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to either. But I know what God calls us to do, to live godly. And then there's a great promise to remember that as we think about godliness and persecution. 2 Peter 2, 9 says that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. So we live godly lives. It brings on persecution, family, friends, country, <laughs> politicians, you name it. We can get in the crosshairs cross of a lot of people when we, live, when we live godly lives. But God knows how to rescue those. Doesn't that give you great hope to stand up and say, I'm going to follow the Lord no matter what the rest of society or even other Christians would even say. I'm going to obey him. He's worthy of it. And that's really what the sermon is about. Challenging us to live godly lives at whatever cost. A.W. Pink many years ago said this. He said, the great mistake made by most of the Lord's people is in hoping to discover in themselves that which can be only found in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you can't find the hope of Christ in ourselves. See, that's what we do. This is what helps us when we come here preaching, when we put ourselves under daily reading of the word of God, when we allow the spirit freedom to work in our lives he helps us find that there is no answer within Scott of him, in and of himself. But in Christ, I have those answers. Spurgeon said this, he said, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. Let me read that again. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. What's empty in our lives that we're pursuing? <laughs> what trash can is in our life that's empty that we're pursuing? We'll know the fullness of life when we know Christ. And that's my goal, to encourage you to this morning in those things. The title of the sermon is The Empowering Grace and Glory of Christ in This Present Age. His grace and glory will empower you, brothers and sisters, to live in this present age. Look with me at Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, will be our text this morning. I will return to Mark next week. Christ is on his way to the cross, and we will get there and look at every detail of that as we come back. But let's look at this passage this morning and encourage our hearts for this week. First and foremost, we see that the grace and glory of Christ is revealed. The grace and glory of Christ revealed. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. 
Well, notice that little word for right there at the beginning of, I think every translation uses the English word for there, and it ties this profound statement of verse 11 to practical Christian living, right? That's what he's been talking about. Verse one, have sound doctrine. Verse two, older men lead the way. Um, Verse three, older women, teach younger women the things you have learned. Younger women, learn to be these, these, these subjects to their husband and God and wife and honor God in all that you do. Young men, be example of good deeds. Bond slave, live for the Lord, adorn the doctrines of God. All of these are what he has been teaching in this. And so here he says, he uses this little word for, this little preposition to tie in this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. See, Paul is heightening the awareness that everyday Christian life should be undergirded and strengthened by the grace of God. By Christian doctrine, what do you believe that should strengthen you for tomorrow? That's why our church teaches doctrine, teaches verse by verse, tries to understand the deep truths of God because that's what you need on Monday. You need that truth to get you through Christian conduct must be grounded in and motivated by the power revealed through Christ and his word. Motivated by his grace. Are you motivated by the grace of God? That someone so unworthy of salvation, deserving of the fires of hell, has been freed from that. Does that motivate you? Thank you, I heard a yes. (laughs) Is that our motivation? What gets you up on Monday? What gets you through difficult circumstances? If it's not the grace of God and the glory of Christ, oh, you're working on something very empty. Look, Paul is unpacking a powerful statement in verse 10. Notice what he says in 10. He says that we have adorned, the end of 10 will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What a profound statement. And every once in a while, Paul, when he writes, he just breaks out in praise. He just, he can't stop it. He just is overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And I think that's what verse 11 is. After talking about the doctrine, adorning the doctrine of God our Savior, in every respect, he just cries out, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. He does it again in chapter three, verse four, after talking about our previous life and the foolishness and the disobedience that we are engaged in as sinners before salvation. He just breaks out and get in verse four, chapter three, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Wow, what a statement. Grace, salvation, kindness, love, (laughs) all appeared to us. Look, I, I have no greater message than that to give you this morning. If, if those th- th- four things, grace, salvation, kindness, and love, can't motivate you, I'm in a lot of trouble. This is the, this is the power of what we believe. This is the gospel, isn't it? Now, notice in verse 11, Paul turns to the past to assert the, the historical reality of the grace of God for salvation, daily living. Here he expresses that there's a point in time that the Lord saves you. There's a point in time the Lord saves you. Isn't that praiseworthy? God knew you before the foundations of the world. He knew there was a certain point of time he would open your heart and mind. He would flood faith in it so you would repent and turn to him. There, God's unmerited favor of grace towards the believer reflects in an active and intentional love in securing you and I. He secures us. There's an active love of God. He pulls us from the world, secures us in this active love that he has for us. Now, notice in verse 11 it says, has appeared. Now, this is a fulfillment of God's redemptive plan started before the foundations of the world where he knew every individual that he would draw to himself. But certainly, he has, re- he has appeared in a lot of ways, right? He, he appeared in his virgin birth, right? That was the miraculous uh, conception of Christ in the womb of Mary by the Spirit of God. And, and then, he, of course, he had a very natural birth, but he appeared in this world, right? And he's even given a name, meaning one who saves. And then he 
appeared in this perfect life. We see very little of his early years um, of life. And then all of a sudden, he starts his ministry, and his life is perfect. And then probably one of the greatest appearances this may speak of is this sacrificial substitutionary death that he hangs on a cross in our place. And then finally, an amazing resurrection. He appeared after that. Now, the next verse tells us that this grace has appeared not only to to save us, but to train us to walk with him as his glorious church. More on that in a moment. But notice in verse 11, it says, bringing salvation. This word, bringing salvation, I think most of the translations say that in there. It's just one word. It's soterios is, is the word. We get the word to save or deliver from that. But it's an adjective here. And it's describing the effects of this grace that has appeared, both in redemptive purposes and then this life that we live now. So he's making a statement, getting ready to help us say not only was this a great salvific work in our life, but this is a sustaining work. Day to day, his grace helps you. Day to day. Now, he makes a statement of all men, and there are people who have abused this. Pas, uh, pas anthros, uh, 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 oh, just my tongue got tied. Anthropos, anthropos, we get anthropology from this word. You may have studied this. This is the, the doctrine of humanity. And so it says all men. Now, he is not saying that all people, universalism, that everyone's going to be saved. But, but here he, he's noting that salvation is, is limited to those God knows, to all, to all men. Now, let me explain that. The Bible is clear that only a few go through the narrow gate. The Bible is very clear on it. And when you study the scriptures, you begin to realize that salvation for all men looks at this intended scope of grace that God has chosen for every tribe, tongue, people, culture, class, and so forth. He wants to draw people from every walk of life to himself. And God is revealing his grace to innumerable individuals across this complete spectrum of society that have ever breathed breath on this earth to, to put in front of his presence someday people from every walk of life. If it was universalism, then, of course, why would we need the cross? If everybody goes to heaven, if we all get there one way or another, which most people believe, because you never go to a funeral where somebody's going to hell. (laughs) We don't believe in universalism. We believe in the electoral love of God that he draws to himself. And he knows those who belong to him. Paul, again, in that great last letter he wrote to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 19, says, Nevertheless, the firm foundations of God stand, having this seal. The Lord knows whose are his. And Jesus, in his great preaching in in John, chapter 6, says, All that the Father gives me, I will lose none of them. So we are this gift. He, He... in his sovereignty, in his perfect perfection, calls people out of this world and lets us experience his grace. Now, if you're a child of God, you have assurance of this saving grace in your life. If you're a child of God, you have assurance of this. You know that God called you out of this world. You know when at least a day or that time frame when God showered grace upon you and you said, I'm a sinner. (laughs) See, he's already given you faith to even say that. He grants you faith so you can repent. I'm a sinner, I know Christ. I wanna know him, I wanna experience him. He died for me. And your life begins to change. So if you are unsure that you're a child of God, you say, Scott, I'm not sure I've tasted the grace of God. Let me say this, reach out an empty hand to God. See, as those who teach the sovereignty of God, we, we certainly teach that, hey, come to God empty-handed. Look, if you say, God, I need your saving work, and you stretch out an empty hand, meaning I have nothing to offer you, would please save me, that's God himself motivating to you to do that. <laughs> There's no way you do that on your own. You don't need God. You just rely on your good works and who you are and, and, and some, maybe some knowledge you had from going to church. 
Oh, one who God is drawing is one who reaches out an empty hand. Second thought, the grace and glory of Christ instructed. The grace and glory of God instructed. Look at verse 12 with me. Instructing us, now this grace that has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, is now instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age or in the present age. Now notice the recipients of this instruction here. Paul designates as us. I think that's pretty cool. That's the believers. That is those who have personally accepted the grace of God for salvation. You are the us. Look at that. Look at the verse. Instructing us. Boy, I don't, I don't miss little prepositions like this. See, that makes the Bible super personal, doesn't it? It didn't say, well, you know, whoever you guys are out there. No, no, it's us. Believers. Believers who have tasted the grace of God. <laughs> who have experienced our sins forgiven. That's an amazing thing. Most of the world is going to go to hell because their sins are not forgiven. You and I, dear brother and sister, are ones who have been forgiven. And so the instruction is to us. The, the word, the, the Greek words is a present active participle Paul chooses to use here. And it contains a a nature of instruction, more the idea of the idea of education. In other words, grace plays a prominent role in the education process of a Christian. Do you know that? Grace is constantly teaching you. Yes or no? I mean, think about it. Is it happening in your life? Is the grace of God instructing you? Is it instructing me how to live my life? Or are my instructions coming from somewhere else? How I feel, what I want. What's instructing you how to live your life? If it's not the grace of God, then it has to be something of you, and that's dangerous. And you can find yourself in a lot of trouble. So grace takes the believer to school. (laughs) You ever thought about that? Grace takes the believer to school and carries on a process of training in us. Now, the present tense of the participle is amazing. It has a continual process. And I would say this, no Christian ever graduates from the grace school until he dies or until she dies. And that's a great, glorious graduation, isn't it? So we're in this school for life, right? Because, because the Lord is constantly conforming us to his image. Look at verse 12 again. Verse 12 gives a very comprehensive view of the education process here. Now, now notice that grace is implied in both the negative and positive, meaning negative, deny. There's a negative thing there, meaning when we talk about Greek and Hebrew or in languages, negative means he did not, but he did, right here. So the negative here is to deny, but the positive is to live. So grace is is certainly applied to the blessing of walking with God, but grace is applied to spiritual correction. Spiritual correction. God's grace is correcting you, my dear brother and sister. That's what it does. We think, well, isn't grace to make everything better? Absolutely. But you and I know we need correction. You know, we always quote the verse in Hebrews 12, 6, for those, who love, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. We, we, we say that a lot, right? And we believe that. You know what the last part of that verse says? And listen to the last part of that verse. He scourges every son whom he receives. Uh-oh, the discipline just got painful. Did you hear that word? It's the same word of what they did to Jesus that were right in that text in Mark 15. He said he scourges every son whom he receives. When's the last time you've been to the spiritual woodshed? I know some of you older, younger people may not get that. Woodshed is where they keep wood. And your parents would take you back there and it wouldn't be good. <laughs> so, so grace, listen, grace is, is, a, is an instruction in the profound love of God in our life, and it teaches us to deny 
ungodliness, right? And worldly lust. And so grace disciplines us. I have told so many mothers and fathers who have walked through my office and said, my son or daughter is not living for the Lord. I don't know if they're saved. And they want me to tell them whether they're saved or not. (laughs) I go, I didn't get that magic wand at seminary. I missed that line. But here's what I do know. If your son or daughter or you are saved, God will come after you. And if he doesn't, you better be scared to death. Because he scourges the one he loves. That's a mark of grace. When's the last time you felt the disciplining hand of God on your life? Where you go, God is on me right now. Did you do anything about it? Did you repent of sin? See, remember, the aim of grace is not academic, it's character. Do you get that? The aim of grace is not academic, it's character. Yes, we learn through the mind and the heart, but the result is that we have the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace in our life is designed to reflect the grace and glory of Christ. Listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, there's another we, a personal pronoun, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Present continual text. From the day of salvation to the day your last breath goes out of you or the Lord comes and takes us back collectively, he is transforming you. Is he? I think it's a good question. If there's no transformation ever taking place, if you bought into Jesus for some kind of fire insurance, oh friend, be very fearful. But God transforms our lives, brothers and sisters. And he he loves to constantly, presently, right now, and tomorrow morning at six, and Wednesday afternoon at noon, and Friday in the morning, he loves to transform you into the image of his son. And he'll use all kinds of means. Sometimes he uses that person sitting next to you and knows you best. Sometimes he uses a pastor, someone who shepherds you. Sometimes he just uses you by yourself in your Bible, sitting by a lamp, reading God's word. He's always conforming us. Listen, understand, dear brother and sister, that the gospel given to us is not merely an escape from punishment of sin, resulting in hell, but its aim is to affect transformation, character, conduct of the believer. He wants us to reflect his son, Look, he does not save his people in their sins, listen to this, but from their sins. He just does not save people in their sin. Certainly that's true. We're all bloodied and sick and dirty in our sins, and he saves us out of that, but he saves us from it. I think that's probably the missing message in in modern-day Christianity. There's a lot of people who attend church, a lot of people have Jesus as a fire insurance, but are they saved from their sins? The sins that so once gripped us, as Paul talks about in chapter three, verse three. Ones that we we loved and we hated people and all the stuff that went on. Are we saved from those sins? See, this is what grace does. And due to our sinful past, God must clear away this spiritual garbage in our life. This decaying building as he constructs an eternal one for us. And look, everything offensive to God goes through grace. He doesn't, listen, he doesn't allow offensive things in his life. He's not happy with offensive things that cost the death of his son to remain in our life. Can I say it that way? What great God would give his son to die for us to let us just stay in garbage? He wants us to change. And he gives us everything we need to do it. Now, notice in verse 12, it says, denying ungodly and worldly desires. Literally, you can read it this way from the original. It says, instructing us so that we deny ungodliness and earthly desires. See, the past tense points to the definite act of forsaking something, forsaking an old lifestyle. 
such as a, uh, an act of abandonment of, of something we once held dearly to. And it's this irresistible grace that God puts in our life for us to say, you know what, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want this in my life. Now, you say, Scott, well, wait a minute. I know me. I have some failures and uh, there's times of repentance and there's times my heart gets hard. Does that mean I'm an unbeliever? Well, certainly not. Uh, Paul himself in Romans 1 says, you know, why do I do the things that I do? And then he finally just wraps it up and he says, oh, wretched man, who will deliver this body from death? In the very next verse he says, but I thank God through Christ. See, that's the mark of the believer. There are times we fall into godlessness, even worldly lust. The question is, does grace bring us out? And how long did it take? That, that's where we begin to look at our lives. The word ungodliness here clearly denotes a lack of influence of the character of God. Godliness is a reflection of God. So godlessness is a lack of influence on our lives. But ungodliness is not necessarily just wicked, outward sinners, however that may be true. But it could reflect a hidden conduct, hidden behind moral behavior. But the grace of God and the glory of Christ will not have a place in that life. Oh, there may be an appearance here and there. there. There may be some Christian phrases, a prayer before a meal once or twice every once in a while, but not a life dedicated to Christ. Now, worldly desires, those are lusts that are characterized by the world. They are things, listen to this, they are things foreign to the character of God. They're foreign. So what foreign thing is in our lives? And since an unrepentant sinner has no place for Christ in his word and his life, the desires and yearnings for these things that don't reflect the character of God begin to occupy that person and the love of the world, which is passing away, John says, becomes their mainstay. I love the things of the world. And this is exactly what the grace of God is training the believer to turn from. The grace of God is training us to turn from these worldly desires. Lord, my heart wants these things sometimes, Lord, and I know that's not what you have for me. God, help me. Cause me to love you more than these things. Isn't that kind of him to do that? To grant you the grace to love a God more than the worldly things? Now, man, look, brothers and sisters, God is so good to us. I, I don't, if I look around the room, I don't think anybody's living in a box here. Some way you have, a, you have some kind of roof over your head. You're driving a car. Don't think anybody is starving to death looking around the room. Now, Paul says with this, that should be enough. And yet our hearts lean towards more, huh? More. If I could get this and if I could get that. See, that's not inside the character of God. Now, when he gives you something, thank him, praise him for those things. Now, the grace of God also shows a positive side of this. Look at, it, look at what it does. To live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. These three adverbs are revealing great truth, aren't they? Sensibly. This, this I think, can, can reflect a personal life, right? So the grace of life, grace of God reflects personally. Live sensibly. That means living within our means because of grace. Whatever God has given us, being grateful for those things. God, this is the home you give me. This is the person you've given me to reside with. This is my life. This is what you've given me. I, I, I want to live sensibly with the things you've given me. It's, it's having stewardship of the things of God on this earth. And, and we should not be living like the rest of the world who crave entertainment, who just have to be entertained every minute. That's their life. That's their God. They're constantly after personal gratification and they'll go in debt to get there. They'll go in debt to feed those worldly lusts. Notice the next thing he says that we are to live righteously. Well, certainly that's just right living according to God's standards, but I think this has a lot to do with our missions. Righteously 
certainly could reflect our personal characteristic, but it contains the idea of loving your neighbor. Have you ever put that together? See, God wants our righteous living to be a testimony that your life has been changed. See, we get to, by the grace of God, live righteously, and people go, hey, something's different about him or her. They're not into all this stuff that's going on. They seem to have a, a clear mind on this. See, there's righteous living. Do you understand that righteous living is part of evangelism? Now, uh, I think a lot of Christians, that's all they do in evangelism is try to live right and never speak. I don't think that's what evangelism is, but it's a healthy part of evangelism. You cannot tell people the grace of God and live in worldly lust. <laughs> so it's part of our evangelism to live righteously. It's what society needs. We've been working on that on, on Wednesday nights in this series through the Ten Commandments. Oh my goodness, do, does the society need the Ten Commandments right now? Don't murder be faithful, don't commit adultery, be a faithful, God wants a faithful people. Don't steal, be content with what God has given you. I mean, it's, it's such what the world needs, but they can't get it because they don't have the spirit of God. You and I live righteously and we show that. Next word is godly. And this shows the desire to reflect the one who poured his grace on us. We want to reflect him. And, and we're sensible reflects the personal relationship and righteously reflects the relationship to our neighbors, godly reflects our relationship with our heavenly father. See, this is an attitude of supreme devotion to him. I'm devoted to you, Lord. I'm devoted to you, Lord. You go, Scott, I think I know all this, but man, do we need to hear it again, don't we? Always need to hear it, always, day after day. I need to be reminded of these things. And I think the Apostle Paul believed that even amid a degrading environment, and you think ours is bad, go step back in the Apostle Paul's time. Christians are hunted down, thrown to lions as sport, coming to a state near you, uh, maybe soon. But that's the way it was. And yet he gives us this instruction. You know, he's... He's writing many of his epistles from prison, chained. And his last one is, is this is it. I'm done. I've poured out. And yet the instruction is the same. Now, those who receive this instruction, this teaching of grace, this education of the grace of God, and those of us who have tasted the glory of Christ, were able, through Christ, to live consistent lives. Isn't that beautiful? The church needs this. Al Mohler recently said this. He said, the church that doesn't tell people how to live in obedience to Christ isn't a church at all. And there's so much pressure on pastors. Because people want to live God godless lives, and then, but they want to come to church because that makes them feel good, and then they come meet with you and say they're, they're not happy with you for preaching on that stuff. So that's not the church. That's not the church at all. We're just following what God has written down. This is how he wants us to live. Three, the grace of God, of the, excuse me, the, the grace and glory of Christ returning. The grace and glory of Christ returning. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, our glor of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Well, it isn't hard to take our present circumstances that we find ourselves in this world and make that, and that causes us to look to the future. If you're a Christian of any length and you've suffered at all and you listen to a sermon like this, you must think, Lord, come soon. <laughs> come soon. Maranatha is the word they would use in the early church. Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Notice this sweet, comforting phrase here in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope. Looking for the blessed hope. Those longing for the blessed hope are the same ones who experience the grace of God in the glory of Christ. They go together. If you experience God's grace and you've seen the glory of Jesus Christ and understand who he is, you long to see him. You long for this comforting blessed hope. If you don't long for this blessed hope, it's because you're not applying the instruction and education of grace You've let the world now direct your path more than you should. You can do that as a believer. Or 
you just haven't tasted any of that stuff, and this is all irrelevant to you. There's no grace driving, and there's no blessed hope. See, the tense of this participle, it's a beautiful thing, has a continual attitude of hope for the believer. The word can be translated anticipating. Uh, We could translate it welcoming this blessed hope. It's got a door wide open. Oh, come soon, Lord Jesus. I'm in the battle. I'm going to keep running until you call me home by death or by rapture. But come soon, Lord Jesus. There's that attitude that comes with it. It speaks of the imminent return of Christ. Imminent to return. Paul speaks of the way of that. The writers of the New Testament always talking about the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I love to speak on, on, on the return of Christ. J.I. Packer died recently, and many of you know, and you heard me make this statement um, about him. One of the things that he said, that every day he made it his, his habit to spend some time of his, part of his day thinking about heaven. He, and he, said, he, he goes on to tell you why. He says, because I'm so earthly bound. I'm so desperate, or at least... You know, needing that next check, I think, to be able to eat and live and pay bills and so forth, that that's natural. I wake up naturally consumed with the things that I have to get done. So he said, I put into my life a, a portion of my day where I think about heaven. I like that. That's a 90-year-old man who's walked with God for 70, 80 years, giving us counsel. And that's what he, Paul's giving us, Right? There's looking for this blessed hope and appearance. Now, this hope and appearance, there, there are one article that kind of turns them to, to, uh, ties them together, right? Hope and appearance are, are tied in the Lord's return of his glory. And, and yet there's two different views, I mean, different viewpoints of them, right? Uh, the idea of hope is that this, this verse is not just subjective, but it's objective, meaning everything we believe and all the blessings that come with it are fundamentally related to the return of Christ, if he doesn't come back, we just blew an hour and a half. <laughs> in fact, just not an hour and a half, because I look around the room, and many of our dear elderly in here have done this for years and years and years and years. Some of you are saved at a young age, and you've dedicated your life towards Christ. See, our hope is tied up in the return of Christ. If he doesn't get out of that grave, then there's no hope. But he did get out of that grave. And 1 Corinthians reminds us because he resurrected the body of Christ, he will what? Resurrect us. And there's a hope that he's returning. Look, you and I, we're like the disciples when he said, you're gonna leave me too? We go, where would we go? (laughs) You have the words of life. We have no plan B. (laughs) You know Christianity, you don't look at our doctrinal statement and kind of keep working through it and go, well, it looks like they only got one plan. That's right. We got one plan. We are not diversifying in our spiritual plan uh, portfolio. We got one plan. Live for Jesus till you die or he comes and gets you. That's it. That's why it's a blessed hope. See, if it's not a blessed hope, you're looking for other things. You've got a whole other list that you're trying to work through. It's a blessed hope because that is the only hope in a good thing, not hoping getting something for Christmas. That is our rest. We rest in that fact. And this educates us, moves us to his appearing. And at his appearing, your faith will become sight. And all that the Lord has done will open your eyes and give you such worship. Notice he says that, that blessed hope is looking for the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, that glory, that's his essence, that's his person, that's his nature, that's who he is. He's the all in all. He shares that glory, that essence, that nature with the Father and the Spirit. And this triune God is returning for his children. Notice the phrase, our great God and Savior. One article combines the two. And everything that this verse says that God is our Savior. Christ is our Savior correct they are combined they they are one god and three persons but share the same essence and same glory and of course this verse has upset many people down through the ages the word great there lifts christ's name with equality with the father 
The reader, you and I, people that come along say, well, God's great. Here it says Christ is great. It, it brings equality. It lifts up in harmony with the, with the Father. This has always been the teaching of the church. There was a few um, exceptions in the early church fathers, but it has always been understood the equality of Jesus Christ. And here this passage clearly delineates his deity. And at the Lord's coming, brothers and sisters, Christ's claim to, de- to deity um, will be full displayed. The first time he was here, they mocked and scorned him because he made himself out to be God, right? That's the original death sentence. That one's coming back. He's coming back. And every knee will bow. Fourth, the grace and glory of Christ in our redemption. Look at verse 14. Who gave himself to us, excuse, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I love John Newton writer of amazing grace, the once slave trader, now born again Christian, he wrote this, thinking of his redemption. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not even what I hope to be. But by the cross of Christ, I am not what I was. (laughs) And I would add to that, to Mr. Newton's phrase, but I'm growing to be more like my Savior. That's the goal. And it's this great redemption that we find in verse 14 that drives this. And our redemption was, was bought through the Savior's gracious, self-sacrificing, substitutionary work, right? He would bought us. No, notice the phrase there, who gave himself for us. Everything is pointed to it, right? The who is pointing towards himself. It's a definite voluntary act on his part. It's exclusive act of Jesus Christ himself and the personal pronoun himself highlights that. His whole person came to die for you. Everything that he is. Do you understand that? It, takes, it took everything that he was, is, and always will be to redeem you. His full glory and essence of God, it took all of that to redeem us. And notice it says for us. You could translate it on our behalf that way. See, it just marks the substitutionary act. And redemption and substitution went hand in hand to purchase our souls through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the purpose of this redemption is again viewed both negatively and positively. Negatively, negatively, he has redeemed us from our lawless deeds. That's the sad part of his death, right? He, he had to die for our lawlessness. This is our condition of bondage to sin. We're completely undone, right? His redemption is viewed here as rescuing. It's a rescuing power of sin, not just guilt, but of sin. He certainly, our guilt goes with that, but he rescues us from our sin and the guilt that accompanies that. It marks a complete deliverance. Complete deliverance. John wrote this in 1 John 3, 3 through 5. He says, everyone who has this hope, what we're talking about, fixed on him, purifies himself just as we are pure. But everyone who practices consistently sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, lawlessness, and in him there is no sin. So lawlessness is, lawlessness is complete contempt for the character of God. You say, well, I don't know if that's true. Break his law, you broke one, you broke it all. His law is his character. His law reflects his perfect nature. And when we get to lawlessness, and that's who we were, don't think about all the stuff that's going on out. There's plenty of lawlessness to think about. Think about yourself. You at one point were lawless. In fact, you were born into lawlessness. And so God redeems us. He redeems us. Now, he redeems and purifies a people. And look what it says in verse 14 here. For his own possession. Isn't that cool? I belong to God. I belong to God. I belong to God. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) I now, 
am a child of God. I'm in his family. He, he he's owns me now. I'm his possession. The perfect one now has me. <laughs> oh, that's an amazing fact, isn't it? Sometimes we have to wake up to the simple truths, don't we? We have a position in Christ. Where Christ is, we are. He's placed us in his son. We're in this beautiful union. We sit at the right hand with the Father. Just as Christ sits. Because we have tasted his grace and witnessed his glory. And notice that in the end of there that we're zealous for good deeds. See, grace and the glory of Christ, grace of God and the glory of Christ make us zealous for serving the one who owns us. I mean, it just does. In fact, Paul said it this way, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to accomplish. So every time you serve the Lord and you find a way to give to him in some way, monetarily, physically, spiritually, however you give yourself to the Lord and fulfill those good works, you're fulfilling something God had already planned in the past. And here's the key, are you zealous about it? And this one hits home a little bit. How zealous are we in here to serve the Lord? See, churches are having a problem getting their people back. They're having a problem getting all kinds of going because what happened is the church served the people. It wasn't serving the Lord. Every week I talk to pastors. How, how'd you do it? How'd you guys get back all the way back on May 3rd? How did you, how, you guys got BFGs going? How did you do it? They're all asking us how to do it. And I'm very humble and very careful how I say it, but in the back of my mind going, we're zealous for the Lord. That's what it is. And yeah, we're trying to be cautious. And, you know, if you're, if you're concerned with health, wear a mask. But come back to church if you're healthy enough. Be zealous for the things of the Lord. That, that's the key. Not, you know, legalism works its way in is when we do something without zeal. I just did it because, you know, they asked me to. They told me to go to BFG, so I went. Waste of an hour and a half. Could have been home. I mean, come on. Are you zealous? Would you like me to preach in monotone voice? No. Don't live your life in monotone. Live for the Lord. He's worthy of our praise, isn't he? Look at number five. Exhortation and proclamation of grace and glory of Christ. The exhortation and proclamation of the grace of glory of glory of Christ. Look at verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one discard you, disregard you. Well, Paul here continues this section to charge Titus. And the church, I think he's charging us just as much, that these truths should be exhorted and proclaimed even amongst persecution. Even amongst difficulty. Notice he uses three imperatives, speak, exhort, and reproof. And it's in a present continual tense, so it's suggesting that he's saying, Titus, you're already doing this, keep doing this. Keep doing this. This is important in speaking and proclaiming. We are to clearly set forth these things. His grace, his glory, living a life for the Lord that's sensible and righteous and godly, denying uh, godlessness and worldly desires. Those are things where he says, teach these things. This is what hit me. This is, a, this is a section that just hit me this week going, oh God, I want this in my life. And then I read this and it commands me to keep teaching these things. They should never grow old. Notice in speaking or proclaiming, we're to clearly set forth these things. And he says, speak forth, right? So the men who handle the word of God must speak the whole counsel. Speak truth. Refrain from a man-centered wisdom. If you're new here, you notice I teach verse by verse, book by book. You know, that's just chapter by chapter. That's what we do because we think it's the best way to understand God's passage, what he has for us, his word. Uh, you know, and we certainly hit topics. I'm on kind of a topic now, but we're in a text because we want to preach his word, keep speaking his word. This is what we do. Then the word to exhort, men handling the word of God are called to exhort. This means to apply truth to daily circumstances. Urge people, plead with people to follow despite their difficult circumstances. Despite what you're going through, because it already goes, well, the pastor has a good sermon, but you don't know what I'm going through. Well, I probably don't, but there is one who does. 
And he still gives truth to you, and it's truth no matter what circumstance you're in. And that's a great thing about the Bible, depending on your male, female, young, old, whatever, it applies to you in your circumstance. And so Paul says, Titus, exhort this. Be passionate about it. My people need it. Then he tells Titus that the men handling the word must reproof. They must reproof the hearer as well. And reproof means to expose error. This word was used to Peter trying to expose error of Jesus, and he ended up getting called Satan and told him to get behind him. But it's an important word. It means to expose error. Peter was trying to expose error in Christ. Well, that was wrong. The word of God exposes error in us. How many of us have error right now? We are have false thinking about something. And you may not in this service right now be able to come up with it, but I promise you, you and I have some false views on something. And it's probably how God loves us and our situation that we're going through and we're, you know, poor me and so forth. That's errant thinking. God loves you. He knows exactly what you're going through. And if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't be breathing. He, he, he is there and we need to be reproofed. And it says, with all authority to the men who handle the word of God can't make people obey, but we can certainly proclaim those truths. And I don't want to be the person who makes you obey. That would be terrible, terrible responsibility that a human could ever have. That's the Spirit's job. Pastors and myself prayed this morning. We prayed that God's word, and they didn't even know I was making the change into this text. But their prayers were, God, take the word of God through our mouthpiece, Pastor Scott, and and take your spirit and take the word and pierce our hearts. Because we know that's his role. That's the role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We preach the word. He convicts, not Scott. If I personally have brought you to conviction in any way here today, you're not going to make it out the back door with that. If the Spirit has brought conviction into your life, oh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So when we preach, we allow the Spirit to do his work. Thomas Watson One of the Puritans said this, when the word is preached, the great God is giving us his charge. Do we listen to it as to a matter of life and death? This is a good sign that we love the word. This is a life and death situation right here, isn't it? How I'm gonna live and how I'm gonna die. That's what this text is about. So no matter the age of anyone in here, or the age of the person who teaches. We are to be hearers and doers of the word of God. Let me just close with just a couple of charges. Godly lives matter. I don't know what to tell you. It just hit me this morning. I wrote that in my notes this morning. Godly lives matter. They just do. That's what this text is about. It matters that we are godly people. It shows we've embraced and have and have assurance of the gospel in our life. Godly lives matter. They reflect our true heart. Have you tasted the grace of God? Have you seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm gonna pray, but afterwards, I'm gonna have you stand and give a benediction, but there'll be a pastor down front. If you need to talk to somebody, I'll be down here. Another one will be down here. Please, come and talk. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that you have... You have scourged us a little bit maybe today. You took us into the spiritual woodshed and maybe gave us a couple that we needed today. It was all done in love and graciousness because that's who you are, God, but worldly desires and godlessness seems to leak into our life. And it's not spiritually healthy for us and it certainly doesn't bring worship to you. So we pray, Lord, that you would change us today and tomorrow and the next day to be more like your son. We love you, Lord. We really do. We know you've saved us. And so we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? May God bless you and keep you and cause his light to shine upon you. May glory and grace of Christ instruct us to deny deny ungodliness and worldly desires. May his glory and grace lead us into lives that please him and proclaim him in this present age. 
And may we be continually captured by his glory and grace and long for his appearing. May we speak of his grace and glory with humble boldness until he returns. Amen.